This morning we start a, a new series entitled Enough, and it's a study of uh, the book of Colossians. It's one of the epistles of Paul. It's one of the ones that he wrote while he was in prison, and uh, he wrote to a church that was located in a city called Colossae. So you may want to open your Bibles uh, to the book of Colossians. Uh, I remember when I was growing up uh, and I could never figure out, you know, you had Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I never could figure out how to remember them. They told us General Electric Power Company. So if that that stays with you, uh, General Electric Power Company. That way I've got Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians on there. So it's one of the prison epistles. And uh, Paul wrote, wrote it to this church that was in Colossae. Now, Colossae, a hundred of years before Paul wrote this letter, was a booming, vibrant city. And the reason was, it's right there in what is called Asia Minor, what we know as Turkey. And there is Ephesus over here, then there was Colossae here, and then there was Persia here. And so it was a trade route that would go right through there. And so Colossae was booming. But it's interesting because back then, something happened that happens here, and that is the people changed the road system and they took the highway and it bypassed Colossae. And we've seen it happen here in the States when all of a sudden they've changed and what used to be a major artery now is no longer the major artery and the town begins to dry up. That's what happened to Colossae. They changed the roads. And when they changed the road, it went through Laodicea and Aeropolis, which were probably like 10, 13 miles away from, uh, uh, from Colossae. And so since Colossae was not the main route, all of a sudden the city began to lose population. They began to lose importance. And so this was now just, a, uh, just one of the minor cities on there. In fact, one commentator said that it was the uh, least important city of any city that Paul wrote in his epistles. But there was a church there, and it was not a church that Paul founded. Paul had never been to Colossae. There was a man by the name of Epaphras who grew up in Colossae, who went to Ephesus when Paul was there and was planting that church, and he heard the gospel, and he made a decision for Christ, and he came back to Colossae, his hometown, and he began to teach and tell about this gospel, and people were hearing it, decisions were being made, and all of a sudden the church was being formed, and so it wasn't even... Paul, but it was uh, an associate of his, Epaphras, that helped found this church. And so Paul is in prison right now, and Epaphras comes and visits him, and he gives him a message, and he tells him, man, some great things are happening in the church. But then we've also got another issue that we need to deal with. So Paul writes this letter to the church, twofold. First of all, just to show his personal interest in them. In essence, to say, hey guys, I know I've never met you, but what I'd like to know is that, hey, the, the same gospel that, was, that I've been preaching everywhere else is the same gospel that Epaphras preached to you, and I'm excited about what's going on there in Colossae. But the second purpose was there was something that was happening in the church that was just getting started, and they were getting real concerned about. And it was, if you read uh, in commentaries, they call it the Colossian heresy. There was some heresy that was going through the church. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 8, Paul calls it a philosophy, a philosophy. And it's uh, it's something that can be very destructive, but it's just this philosophy. And it's hard to get a handle on what all it is because it's not just one thing. It's a bunch of things. 
And so in doing research on this, I, I went to a, a commentary written by uh, a, a professor at Southwestern Seminary that I had had. His name is Curtis Vaughn. And Curtis Vaughn was a renowned um, uh, theologian. And, and as he wrote in Colossians, he said if you took the whole book, you could probably see three different elements. And he calls it a syncretistic movement. Syncretistic. I'm going to introduce some words today that you're going to be impressed with. And so one of them syncretism. You know, something syncretistic, it just means you add a bunch of stuff into it. So it's, it's like you've you got a, a belief system over here, and then all of a sudden you say, well, I think I'm going to add a little bit of this outside, and I'm going to add a little bit of this outside, add a little bit of this, and we stir it together. And guess what? Now I've got something that's really entirely different. Syncretistic. Other things happen. And that's what was happening over there in the church. And he says there were three elements to it. Number one, there was a Jewish element. Most of the people living there were Gentiles, but there were some Jewish people there. And they would come into the church and they would say, listen, you need to have legalism. You need to have ritualism. You have to have these certain holy days. And that is what it means to be a Christian. And so they were entering that into the teaching. And then he says there was a pagan element. And the pagan element is people who came in from this world of where they were trying to bring their culture into it, and they said there was some superstition, there was astrology, there was some magic, there was angels, there was all kind of things they began to take and add to it. And then there's this growing philosophy called Gnosticism. Sometimes you'll hear it, hear it in your Sunday school lessons at times, Gnosticism. Gnosticism is the elevation of knowledge. And where people felt you had to have this esoteric knowledge to be able to really relate with God. But they also believed that uh, everything that, um, that was not spiritual, that was physical, was inherently evil. And so because they felt like material stuff was inherently evil, they would also say, well, there's things you can't eat, you can't touch, you can't do. And they began to put these other things and they added those to what it meant to be a Christian. And they even had a hard time with Jesus because they said there's no way God could be in flesh because flesh is wrong. And since it's evil, how in the world would God show up in flesh? And so they had their own ways to get around, get around that. So you had a Jewish element, you had a pagan element, but you also had the Christian element. And what I mean by the Christian element is they took the teachings of Paul and they took what we know as the gospel and they said, yeah, we'll keep that. But we're just going to add this other stuff. We're not going to deny Jesus we're just going to dethrone him. We're not going to say that Jesus doesn't have a place. Oh, he's still got a place. He just doesn't have a supreme place. And we began to move away from the glory of God. And so this was coming into the church. And as this was coming into the church, Paul says, we got to deal with this. Because this syncretism can easily distort the gospel. And our sermon series is entitled Enough. Because what Paul tells us is the true gospel is enough. You don't need to add stuff to it. So let's, let's just kind of take a look at it through an illustration as to what that would look like today. Now, if you took this and said this is the pure gospel, and say this is the pure gospel, the gospel that is talked about in the Bible, as we read through what the gospel says and about how Christ died for our sins and only through and was raised from the dead and only through faith in Christ can we have salvation. So we have the true gospel. 
But then what happens is we introduce some other things. And let's say in our world over here, one of the first things we'd like to introduce is our culture. And our culture, today the big buzzword is tolerance. And so it means that there's no absolute truth, there's just relative truth. You tell me what you think is truth, I'll tell you what I think is truth, and then we'll just all get together, which makes absolutely no sense uh, on that. But, but there's no absolute truth. It's just kind of whatever you feel like, and, and we need to tolerate what, what everyone else uh, believes. And so I think that this thing about Jesus only, that's kind of restrictive. And when you say that, when Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, life, no man comes to the Father except by me, that just turns a lot of people off. So I think what we need to do is we need to kind of open this up. And we're all for Jesus. Okay, we're going to keep him. You got that? We're going to keep Jesus. That's okay. And the, the teachings, we're going to keep those. But this thing about only Jesus, we're going to have to need to add. And so we need to make some changes on that. And so as we began to add a little bit in here about just you need to be a little bit more, more tolerant uh, on things. And, and we need to uh, just understand that, that we can't be so dogmatic about some of the things that Scripture talks about. So we need to make some changes. Well, one of our young uh, staff members introduced me to a phrase I've never heard before, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism. It was worth the price of admission, uh, guys. I got to tell you. Moralistic therapeutic deism. It just speaks to my heart. But when you think about those three words, moralistic, be good. We just need to be good. Therapeutic, I want to be well adjusted. Deism. What deism is, deism was a belief that yes, there is a God, but he's a distant God. And it's like the clockmaker theory where he, he builds this clock, winds it up, puts it on the shelf and steps back and just lets it tick. And it's a belief that, yes, we do have a God, but we really don't have a personal God because he doesn't really want to interact with you. He's just going to step back and watch and see what happens. But at the same time, this God can also be a genie because he should give me everything that I want because I want to be happy and I want to be well-adjusted, and that's what God wants for me. It's all about me, isn't it? And so if that's true, then he'll give me everything that I want, and I'm good. And see, what happens is, is the gospel says it's, Jesus didn't come just so that we could be good. Jesus came so we could be transformed. And when Jesus dies on the cross for us, and when we come into that relationship with him, it is so that we can become like Christ and that we can be transformed into his image and we can glorify God, our creator. It's not about me, it's about him. But you know, we need to put a little bit of that in there. We need to put some of that moralistic, uh, uh, therapeutic deism and tie that in. And, in. and while we're at it, I guess we can just put a little prosperity in there, but everybody's supposed to be rich and everybody's supposed to be healthy. So if we could just add that to the gospel, because, you know, the gospel does say that, uh, that if we ask him, he'll give us these things, so let's just add that to it. And let's just put that in there, okay? Well, ah, oh, let's just put them all in there. What do you think? Let's, let's think we got room for it? It's going to overflow. I don't have much for this, which I guess is true because... You know, there's some that believe that if you're really going to have a correct theology, you've got to realize that God has a favorite political party. So let's just put a little of that in there. And we also know that he has a favorite uh, cable news network uh, that, um, that God is in favor of. 
And then by golly, we all know here that God has got at least one favorite football team. So we put that in there. And then you've got this. And I cannot tell you how happy I am that this did not turn out to be orange. Because uh, that would have, I'd have lost you right there. So, whew. Thank the Lord for color theory. Uh, so, uh, now, you look at these. I'm going to take these down right over here. Now, this is today's gospel that people have. This is the true gospel. You see a difference? Now, there's this much is in this. So we, we kept Jesus in here. We kept a lot of his teachings in here. We're not denying Jesus. We're just dethroning him. We're giving him a place. We're just not giving him first place. That's syncretism. And we are in a culture today where this is us. This is the danger. And this is what is happening in the church in Colossae. And Paul is writing a letter to say, guys, you got to be careful. And I think you're going to enjoy this study as we go through four chapters of this book because almost every, way, every few breaks along the way, he deals with one of these issues and he keeps coming back to the truth of the gospel. So you've got your Bibles. I want you to look in Colossians chapter 1. And let's take a look at what he has, has to say here. All right? thing we need to remember is that God is the one who sets the standards. God is the one who determines what is right and wrong. It's not us. It's God that does this. And that's why we got the truth of the gospel. Let's just start reading it. Verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. All right? The saints and faithful brothers, those believers there in Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Then he says in verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. When we pray for you. So he's saying, we pray for you. He says, we pray, me, this team, we pray for you. And every time we pray for you, we just thank God. We thanking God for you. Just an aside, the first time I was reading through this just weeks ago, even thinking about sermon prep, I just made a note. And I said, you know, we need to do more of that, that when someone comes to your mind, that you just thank God for them and you pray for them. You ever thought about that? Thought about that? I see Andy Westmoreland out here. Andy, when I run on Lakeshore Trail, and every time I go by Sanford and see all those weeds and stuff, and I'm just kidding, <laughs> how beautiful the grounds are, and I look over there and I see Sanford University, you and Randy Pittman come to my head, and I know there are other Sanford people. I'll pray for you too, but y'all just come to my mind. And you say, y'all pray for them. And you think about it. You go through your day. When you see someone, you think about them, you just pray for them. This is what they do. Man, when we ever pray for them, we just thank God for you. And then he says, this is why they thank God. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. And of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day that you heard it 
and you understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. The true gospel is enough. Let's talk about that. Number one, let's first of all see what the message of the gospel is. The message of the gospel. When we say that the true gospel is enough, what is the message of the gospel? You take in these eight verses, you can see the gospel. Number one, the grace of God. First part is the grace of God. If you look at the end of verse six, he says, since the day that you heard it and you understood the grace of God in truth. The gospel, it is grace. What the gospel does is it tells us that we are separated from God because of our sins. And because we're separated from God and we have a just desire to come into a relationship with God, we keep trying to figure out how can we do that. And we work and we work and we try to do good things, but nothing we can do is good enough to be able to get to God. And so what God did in his own plan is he sent his own son, Jesus Christ, to put on human flesh, 100% man, 100% God, live a perfect life, and then teach and heal and show people who Jesus, who God is. And then he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And then he went to the cross to pay for our sins because the Bible says that the wages or the penalty of sin is death. That we have to die physically and one day we will die eternally and always be separated from God. And he went to the cross and he died on the cross for our sins. But then God, three days later, reached down in that tomb and pulled him out of the tomb, and he was raised from the dead. And as soon as he came out of the tomb, you could just see the word sin scratched out, taken care of. You could see the word death scratched out. He took care of that. He overcame sin. He overcame death. And then he comes before us, and he says, I want you to have a personal relationship with God the Father. And that sin that was keeping you from it, I've already paid for it. And so I'm offering you a grace gift. I'm offering you a gift right here of salvation. And I'm placing it before you. If you will accept that, then you can come into a relationship with the Father. The gospel, it is grace. It is the grace of God. But second of all, it's faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 4. He says, we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus the commitment, and the trust. He said, this gift was given out there and you accepted it because you had faith in Jesus Christ. You accepted it. You prayed. You asked Christ to come into your heart. His Holy Spirit came in. He says, you accepted that by faith. You took that step. You committed to him and you gave him the authority to rule your life. So the gospel is the grace of God. It is faith in Jesus Christ. And number three is your love for others. Your love for others. He says, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. You see, love is the fruit of faith and it's the proof of its genuineness. And when a person says, I've got faith in God, then he also should demonstrate that by having love for others. And he said, this is why we're so excited when we think about you as a church. These are the things we've heard about you. We've heard your step of faith in Christ and we've heard about the way that you love others. And it just ties into what Jesus said when someone asked him, he said, uh, Master, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and spirit. You need to love God with everything. And then second is to love your neighbor as yourself. 
So if I love God with everything I have in me, it means that I am accepting him as my authority and I acknowledge he is the one God. That's faith. And then I come over here and I practice it by loving others. And he says, this is exactly what you guys are doing. So he said, listen, Colossae, I want to let you know, it's been the grace of God that offered you this salvation, but you guys have got the marks of a Christian. You've shown your faith in Christ, you're loving other brothers, and last of all, there's that hope of eternal life. And so the gospel is the grace of God, faith in Jesus Christ, love for others, and then the hope of eternal life. And in verse 5, it says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. The hope laid up for you in heaven. It's stored up as a treasure. It's in the future. It's laid up. It's the blessedness of heaven. And he said, because you have that hope, that motivates you to keep on going, motivates you to keep loving people, motivates you to keep making those stands for Christ. And he says, because of this hope that's laid up for heaven, the believer's hope is the confidence that it's better to stake one's life on God than to believe this world. Everybody has to figure out where your hope is. And when you drill down and you see we've got faith and we've got love, but then he says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, the hope laid up for you in heaven, that's dealing with eternity. Now, if we can just be as bluntly honest as we can be, every one of us has at least one thing in common here, and that is that we're all going to die. And aren't you glad you came today uh, over here? Nothing like that uplifting message. <laughs> Drink that stuff on the left. Um, but it's true. You just got to open your eyes to it. I, we like to kind of cheat death. We're going to try to look younger. and We're going to try to take good care of ourselves. All that stuff is fine. But one day it's going, it's going to happen. Okay? One day it is going to happen. And so every one of us will have that in common. And then we say, what are you resting your hope on for eternity? Are you just hoping this is just a one and done and that's it and there's no more uh, afterlife uh, after that? I don't know. That's, that's kind of scary. Most people, the vast majority, believe, yes, there is some kind of afterlife. Well, if there is some kind of afterlife, then you've got two options, either good afterlife or a bad afterlife. The Bible calls it heaven and hell. And so the question is, is where would you spend that eternity? What are you banking on for your hope? For eternity where are you putting all your chips in for eternity where are you going with that you know a lot of people think if I can just do good enough then I'm gonna be okay and you'll hear people say oh he's such a good man this is a good young person this is a great person oh, there's no way they would not spend eternity with God well you know God talked about our good things and he says our righteousness is like filthy rags. Now put in your mind, if you've ever done any kind of work out in your garage or whatever, that old nasty towel that you've been cleaning your, uh, either your car with, you've been changing oil, you've been working on your lawnmower or whatever else, it's just nasty. He says, that's your righteousness. And so what would happen is that when you die, you'll take your suitcase full of goodness all the great things you've done. And you're going to carry it up there, and you're going to go face-to-face with God. And he says, why should I let you in my heaven? You said, hey, what do you see what I got in my suitcase? You open up your suitcase, a bunch of nasty, filthy rags. He goes, really? I don't see that. You go, oh, no, it was just here. It was just these, all these good works. 
He said, but you come into the perfect and the holy God, that's not going to do it. But what you have to do is have someone that stands in your stead, and that is his son, Jesus Christ, who says, I know him. I died for him. I paid his sins. And God, if you look close, you don't just see him, but you see the righteousness of Christ in him. Because the Bible says when we receive Christ, we receive his Holy Spirit, and that we receive that righteousness of Christ. And God sees us as that, and he says, come on in. Come on into my heaven. And so it's a question we all have to deal with. And Paul was talking that, man, you guys are right on, on target. You understand the grace of God. you got faith in Jesus Christ. You're loving other brothers, and you've got this hope for eternity. And you know it's laid up, stored up for you like a treasure. All right? That's the message of the gospel. Number two is the universality of the gospel. <clears throat> the universality of the gospel. And that means it's intended for and applicable to all people. We'll leave that up there for a moment. Some big words. <laughs> universality of the gospel. It just means it's intended for and applicable to all people. That the gospel works everywhere. And I love what he says over here. He says um, in, uh, in verse 6, he's talked about the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you. Listen, listen closely to what he says. The gospel that came to you, that Epaphras shared with you, is the same gospel that is growing and bearing fruit all around the world. Now, some people say, was that just hyperbole when he said all around the world because it hadn't gone all around the world? Or others would say, is he talking about the Roman world? Because amazingly, the gospel was smartened to spread like wildfire. When he wrote this letter, it was about 30 years after Jesus had died, uh, risen from the dead, and ascended to heaven. And in those 30 years, people have identified that the gospel is spread from Jerusalem to Syria to Asia Minor to Greece, Italy, and likely into Egypt, North Africa, and Persia as well. And he said it's the exact same gospel that the Colossians heard and they accepted. And the universality of the gospel attests to the truthfulness of the gospel. You see, you don't need to add anything to say we need to get, I think we need to get a better gospel, something that, a little, that maybe appeal to more people. You know what he's saying? Hey, this gospel right here, the true gospel, he said, it's going crazy. It's just going like wildfire, and it's bearing fruit. That same gospel that Epaphras gave you, don't change it. Don't change a thing. You know why? It's growing everywhere. And the truthfulness is being verified because it's not just you and your culture, but it's in other languages, it's in other cultures, and this thing is taking off. It's the same one that was accepted. It is changing lives all around the world. And it is dealing, it's dealing with people that are different than you, but it's the same truth, and they're being introduced to the same God. It's incredible, it's bearing fruit all around the world. Now, personally, I really, one of the things I, I really liked is when I learned about uh, the city of Colossae. They were this big, vibrant city, and then they dropped down, and it's kind of a, kind of a small, smaller town over there. And yet, 
It says that Paul also wrote a letter to the Laodiceans, but it wasn't preserved in Scripture. Paul wrote some other letters, but it wasn't preserved in Scripture. But this one was preserved in Scripture. Little church, preserved in Scripture. I like that. You know what it tells us today? The same gospel that is being preached in a church with 50 people. To when a person hears the clarity and the truth of the gospel and they accept Christ as their Savior, it is just as strong as a 5,000-member church when someone hears the gospel and makes a decision for Christ. It's not like, hey, I'm one up on you because, hey, I was at a big church. Who cares? Doesn't matter. It's the same gospel. And these guys in Colossae, I mean, they're just a small town. And they're just some little rural church over here. You know what Paul says? Hey, guys. (laughs) That same gospel that came into you, man, it's going around the world. It's changing lives, even as it's changing your life. You're a part of something even bigger than you can imagine. And folks, we need to understand that as uh, believers in the gospel, this, we're a part of something that is huge. And this is growing. Now, we see this stagnation here in the United States, but God is doing amazing things around the world. Todd Lafferty sent me some information just on South Asia and what is happening there in Nepal and China and other, other nations. And as you begin to see, the gospel began to take off. And, and there was a book written by Philip Jenkins called The Next Christendom, The Coming of Global Christianity. And he says in 1900, there were 10 million Christians in Africa. In 1900. By the year 2000, 100 years later, that had grown to 360 million believers in Africa. And by 2025, a conservative estimate, 2025, what is that, eight years from now, that number will grow to 633 million, almost twice the population in the United States of Christians there in Africa. The same estimate put that Christians in Latin America could grow to 640 million and in Asia, 460 million. You just need to know that it is growing and is bearing fruit. That same gospel that we're talking about today, it is taking off. It's the true gospel. doesn't need to be changed. You don't need to add to it. It's enough, just like it is. Number three, the messengers of the gospel. The messengers of the gospel. Every believer is a messenger. We see the message of the gospel. We see the universality. Well, who are the messengers of the gospel? Every believer is is a messenger. If you are a believer sitting in this worship service today, guess what? You're a messenger of the gospel. In just a small snippet, you see, uh, you see uh, uh, such, a, such a difference. You've got Paul writing this letter. He's this great theologian. And as Paul is this great theologian, uh, he is one that's out there preaching and suffering for the gospel and planting churches. You say, well, yeah, I can see a guy like Paul. That could be a messenger of the gospel. Well, then you're introduced to Epaphras. You know who Epaphras is? He's a good'un. He's just some good'un from Colossae. And all he's doing, he's working in a small town, doing his job, and all of a sudden he goes to Ephesus, and he hears the gospel. God gets a hold of his heart, and he says, I'm going back home. He goes back home, starts sharing his faith. Tell him about Jesus. Tell him about what's happening. The death, the burial, the resurrection has changed my life. I'm a different, different person. People began to accept, and they began to pray and receive Christ. And then all of a sudden they said, well, I guess we've got to put together a church. And now they put together a church. He didn't go to seminary. He spent some time with Paul. Paul discipled him some, sent him over there, and now he's doing the work. He's just a messenger. As even then, some of you would say, 
well, I know I'm not a Paul, and, you know, the, Met, the Epaphras, at least he had some time with Paul, uh, so I'm just different. Well, I'm trying to look at this. <laughs> look at verse 6. And he's talking about the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it's bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it. As it also does among you. It is bearing fruit and growing. Bearing fruit and growing. Bearing fruit and growing. And the next word says among you. You know what that means? That means that the members of that church are being messengers for the gospel. It is bearing fruit and growing. Where's your minister? Where's Epaphras? He's in Rome. He's visiting Paul. He's not there. But what's happening to the church? It's bearing fruit and it's growing. Where's that coming from? The members themselves. And so every believer, we're all messengers of this incredible gospel. You don't have to go to seminary to be to be the one to say, this is the pure gospel. You just accept it, study it, tell other people about it, and know that the true gospel is enough. And I just, you know, Epaphras for me is a guy that, that I've just built a kinship with. I like the guy. Just in those few verses just here in Colossians. He went back home, he shares the faith. They begin to get the church going, and you know what he does? He brags on his church. He goes to Paul, and he begins to brag on his church in a good way. Because he says here at the end of verse 7 and 8, and he says, uh, he says in verse, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. He's made known to us your love in the Spirit. He's bragging on you. You guys really love people. You really love God. And he's bragging on you. He said, he is a messenger for the gospel. And then for each one of us as individuals, we're messengers of the gospel. And so the gospel, we got the message, right? The message, it's the grace of God, it's faith in Jesus Christ, it's loving others, and it's that hope of eternal life. There's that universality of the gospel and that it's applicable to all people. Everyone needs the gospel, the true gospel. And then there are messengers of the gospel, which means every believer is a messenger of the gospel. And the very last thing is the power of the gospel, and that changes lives for eternity. The power of the gospel is it changes lives for eternity. And that's just what's, it's this message that changes lives for eternity. Listen, folks, don't start adding stuff. Don't start taking things that are not in Scripture and putting them in it to say, this will make it a little bit more palatable. No, there's no power in that. Because you keep going back. The more you add to the gospel, the more you take away from who Christ is, his all-sufficiency and his supremacy. And what you're saying is, you're just not enough. Jesus is enough and the gospel is enough. The true gospel is enough. Let's just share it and let it do its work. And it will change lives for eternity. We could have people in this congregation that could stand up and say, I can tell you where my life was going before I met Christ. And when I met Jesus Christ, I took a radical turn. And I have no idea where I'd be today. 
I had no idea if I'd even be living today because of the choices I was making in the direction I was going. But the gospel changed my life. And when the person of Jesus Christ came into my life, it changed me and changed me for eternity. Because of that great news, every month we try to have a time where we have the Lord's Supper to where we remember what it is that Jesus did for us. At the first part of this message, I mentioned to you about what the gospel was, that Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins. And it was on that night of his arrest that he was there with his disciples. And he gave some final teaching to them. And he also took this final meal. It was a Passover meal. And he took each of the elements, a couple of the elements of that meal, and he gave new significance to it for them to always remember so they would never forget what happened and they would never forget the meaning of that. And so we will take time in just a moment to partake of the Lord's Supper and to remember the one who died on the cross for our sins, the one who gave us the true gospel, the one who is enough, the one who is supreme and the one who is all sufficient. And that is Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to ask at this time for our ushers uh, that are going to help us with the elements. If you would come at this time and uh, we're going to distribute the elements. And as we distribute these elements, I will ask you to do this for me. Just hold on to them. Don't, don't do anything with it. Once you get it, take the element and then pass it, pass it on, a, on a cross. The guys, y'all go on and distribute them now. And... Uh, and as, as you receive that, now I'm going to get you all just to get in your place and then we'll have a word of prayer. As you receive it, just hold on to it. Now, for those that are not members of our church, if you are a believer in Christ, uh, but even though you're not a member of Shades Mountain, you're fine. We'd love for you to participate in this. But if, if, if in attendance in today and you're sitting here and you say, Danny, I understand what you're talking about, the true gospel, but... I've never really done that. I've not really experienced that. Then what I would ask you is that when they pass the plate, you just go on and pass it and, and don't partake. It is something for believers to partake in. And as we explain a little bit more, I think you'll understand. But in the midst of the passing, it gives us a few moments to uh, do a search of our own life and uh, to begin to ask God to take an inventory of what's going on. And for us as believers... It's a time where before him, we say, God, shine your spotlight on my life. You know, there's some things that are just not right that I'm holding on to that I've not released to you. And in these moments, let it be a time of recommitment of saying, Father, I want to give you everything in my life. Forgive me of this sin. And for some, you've never made this decision for Christ. I hope you'll think about what we've talked about. Listen to the words of the song that will be sung. And then... Our hope and prayer is that before you walked out here today, that you would say, I need to make that decision. I need to know eternity, and I need to know today what my purpose and meaning is in life and what it means to have a right relationship with God, and we'd love to help you with that. But at this moment, let me lead us in a word of prayer, get our hearts prepared, and then we'll have the passing of the elements. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the true gospel and... Um, because the true gospel points us to your son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, 
as the elements are distributed and we have an opportunity to think about what you did for us on the cross, may we be convicted of sin, but at the same time, may there be a gladness and joy in our heart because you cared enough and loved enough and demonstrated your love for us that you were willing to do this for us and that we can come into that right relationship with you. So speak to our hearts during this time. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. On that night, uh, as Jesus was talking to his disciples, he had uh, shared with them things that we were just singing about, is that he would be constant and that he would not forsake them, and that if he left, that he would send a comforter to them, a Holy Spirit that would always be there with you. And uh, as they were in the midst of that meal, he took one of the elements, which was the bread, and he took that bread, uh, and he said, you know, this bread represents my body, uh, which is uh, given for you, and um, take eat of it. And at that time, disciples didn't really understand exactly what he was talking about. But they would understand it hours later as they saw him beaten and then crucified, being extended, suspended between heaven and earth for, for six hours. Saw the brutality that took place, the physical nature of that. One thing they'll also would have noticed is the blood. And on that uh, evening, he said to them, he said that, um, I want you to take the cup. And so he took the cup and he says, this cup represents my blood. Blood which will be shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. And it is the blood of a new covenant. He said that when they completed their, uh, their time together in supper, that they went out and they sang and, uh, and there was a time of worship that they had. And as they worshiped, then it was just hours uh, later to where the arrest took place. And so for us, we also like to have a time of, of worship. And, and uh, a part of in our service will be our time of taking up our offering for us to be able to give back to him. And I always think it's interesting when you do the Lord's Supper because it is Jesus totally giving himself up to us and for us, going to the cross to die for us. And then we have an opportunity to take an inventory of all the things that God has entrusted to us. And so then when you come to a service and, and you have a time of an offering of to where you say, you know what, God, I'm so thankful for the things that you've done for me. I, in turn, want to give back to you. And as I give back to you, knowing that those funds will be used to spread the gospel, the true, unadulterated gospel that is powerful. And so uh, our ushers will be coming in just a moment, and as they come to prepare for that, I'd like to ask you to take that connection card uh, that uh, we talked about earlier where you could write prayer requests or check any questions you had about our church. If you could take that and pass that to your right. You pass that to your right, then uh, those on the end of the pew just hold on to them, and our ushers will gather those and get those together. And so let me lead us in a word of prayer as uh, we prepare our hearts for this time of offering. Lord, we are so thankful for opportunities to worship you, and we're thankful that the Lord's Supper, that we're called back to be reminded of what you did for us on the cross, and that it was this incredible demonstration of love for us, and uh, 
You give us an opportunity to experience your grace, and we thank you for that. And so, Lord, in the midst of that, we have this opportunity to turn and to again give back uh, of what we have for you. And we are to give our talents to you, we give our time to you, and now we have this opportunity to give a portion of our treasure to you and to say, God, we want to use it to advance your kingdom. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.